Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Al Anderson with you. We're going to talk unconscious bias now uh, with Fotini Iconomopoulos. I hope well I did done. justice to that name. Did I do okay? You did it just perfect. Oh, excellent. Good, because I was nervous about that all morning. Asked my producer, Cam Poitras, so I kept emailing saying, how do I say it? I want to say it right. Uh, you are a negotiation consultant and an MBA instructor, and you specialize in unconscious bias. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. I, I would say that I specialize in negotiation, but unconscious bias is an unfortunate piece, big piece of the puzzle. Right, and I was talking to a, a regular guest on the show yesterday who teaches negotiation over at Asper School of Business, Sean McDonald, and, and that is a big part of this. So just for people that don't understand what this is, explain unconscious bias, because it really relates to the events of the past week or so. So it, it basically means that your brain is thinking about stuff when you don't even realize that it's thinking about stuff. And so it's a hot topic right now because racism is something people assume happens as an active brain processing activity. And really, it happens at a much more subconscious level. Like we're, we're doing it, we're, we're having these preconceived notions and these perceptions without even realizing that we're doing these things. And so the easiest way to explain, as I said, is your brain is thinking when you don't even realize that you're thinking. And we start to create these messages in our brain and they start to formulate at a really young age and they formulate because of our circumstances around us. So it's really hard to, to disentangle yourself from stuff that's been imprinted on your, on your brain at such a deep level. And I'll give you an example because my wife is black and people will often come up to her and say, where are you from? Well, she was born here. She is Canadian. And that is an example of an unconscious bias, correct? Absolutely. It's one that I get all the time. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know if it lessens it or not because I'm not black. I'm, a white, I'm an old white guy. But um, help me understand, does it matter that it's not being that question that I gave you the example of there, does it matter that it's not being asked with any malice there's no uh you know there's nothing in that person's heart but yet it is an unconscious bias and it's a question that shouldn't be asked that way yeah the problem that we have in our society is that intention is not perception so you could have the world's greatest intentions of the in the world if you could be completely harmless in what you're asking somebody but it's the way that they're receiving it that is going to inform how they behave and how they react to you. Because in their mind, they also have an unconscious bias. So when they hear that question, they're going, you don't see me as a valid Canadian, or you don't see mm -hmm. me as your equal. They have all of these, this history and this experience that's informing how they're going to now respond to you. So unfortunately, I would say in most circumstances, your intentions don't matter. Now, there are ways to overcome that by clearly stating your intentions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to accept it. It's like when you, when you, you can make an apology, but you can't force somebody to, to accept that apology. And in a case like that, and that's just one example of an unconscious bias, but when there is an unconscious bias and somebody is aware of it, somebody goes, hey, is it on them to point it out, to educate? Because it seems to me education needs to be at the heart of much of what's happening right now. I would say it's on everybody right now, especially because I don't know what I don't know. 
if I'm doing something that is offensive, if I'm doing something that bothers you, and I don't know that I'm doing that, there's no way for me to correct it. There's no way for me to apologize for it. But the the onus is on everybody to do it in a way that is productive. So if I said something that's offensive to you or to your wife or anybody around you, and I don't know that, well, if you lashing out at me is not really going to make me want to solve the problem. What that's going to do is make me more defensive because Here's the crux of the whole thing. And and what dominates my career all the time is people's egos. Nobody wants to be told that they're wrong. It's awful. It's uncomfortable. And then people are going to get defensive. But if you can do it in a way that will that will be perceived as productive, because, again, perception is what matters then all of a sudden we may have a much better conversation, something that both of us can feel really good about coming out of it, that we can both learn from and maybe even bond us even stronger. And some people, I haven't checked the text messages or emails, but I guarantee you right now I've got text messages or emails from people that are saying, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. But what we're seeing in Minneapolis and in uh, cities across the U.S., uh, and we're going to get into uh, indigenous racism here. Um, that is a big deal, and an unconscious bias uh, is sort of a seed. You, you, you're the expert. You help me explain it because I'm not doing a very good job. Well, I mean, it's it's hard for anybody to do a very good job right now. It's such a muddy area because this is psychology. This isn't a black and white uh, type of subject area that is going to be very crystal clear to anybody. And, I mean, even scientists have a hard time articulating some of these things. So the, the problem with saying it's not a big deal is exactly that. You're saying it's not a big deal because it's not a big deal to you. To but you, it is right. a big deal to somebody. And by mm-hmm. telling them that it's not a big deal, you are now making them feel invalid. You are making them feel less than. And that's like digging the knife in and twisting it even further. We need to recognize that everybody has different experiences and all of those feelings are valid to them. So if you were to go into therapy with your wife and say, I feel this way, they can't go, that's not a big deal. (laughs) You don't know what I'm feeling right now. You can't invalidate my feelings, right? So if you can put it Mm -hmm. in a different context, take race out of it for a second, take something else out of it for a second, but go, how would I feel if someone told me what was super important to me wasn't a big deal? It's like, you know, somebody who doesn't have kids telling a parent, you know, their future is not a big deal. It's not on you. Their safety is not a big deal. What do you you mean? You just don't understand Mm -hmm. that what, what a big deal that is. Yeah. Well, you're diminishing their feelings, right? You're not, you're not respecting and at least understanding where they're coming from. And that is at the heart of what's happening in Minneapolis and these other cities, right? Black people in the U.S., black people here, or indigenous people here don't feel heard. And then when an incident happens, like George Floyd, um, or then that's when the anger rises up. My uh, negotiation expert yesterday said that, that hard work needs to be done in between these incidents, and then hopefully the incidents will, will come to an end, right? Absolutely. I mean, instead of saying it's no big deal, ask the question. Instead of, instead of imposing a thought on somebody, what about going into their brain and trying to get some information out of them? What about asking the question, how is it a big deal? I don't understand, but clearly there's something there if you're voicing it. You wouldn't be voicing it if it wasn't a big deal of some kind. It's not part of my understanding, but what can I learn from this person? I don't think we interact well enough as a society to go into any conversation going, what can I learn from this person? We don't go in curious. 
we go in trying to imprint our ideas on somebody else and forcing our ideas on other people. And you get a lot more out of conversations when you spend more time listening than you do speaking. Hey, thanks a lot for this. We'll have you back on. Great stuff. Thank you. Lovely to chat with you. Fatini Iconopolis. Iconopolis. There, I got it. Yay, I just had to say it a few times. (laughs) Sorry, I was hoping you were gone already and you didn't have to hear. I prepped for several minutes to say it right the first time. Thank you. Really, really good conversation. I wish we had more time, but we'll have you on again soon. Bob Irving, the voice of the Bombers. Sorry about that. I wanted to get a couple calls on, Bob. Lots going on in the world, and uh, I I saw this as an opportunity to chat with you and and, uh, take a few minutes and and have some fun here as the news around us is is pretty serious these days. Yeah, the news around us is pretty serious, Hal, and it's pretty unpleasant too, isn't it? It came up Mm -hmm. last night on our Blue Bomber Hour, and it'll come up, I think, each night this week because we're going to ask the bomber players, especially the African-American ones, what their views are on on what's going on in their homeland. I was reminded of a Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young song, Hal, while you were chatting with those people, Teach Your Children Well. And, you know, a lot of what we see in terms of the, the racial overtones in the States is, you know, people who are racist teach their children to be racist. I mean, kids don't grow up with racial feelings their race race racism feelings they they get it from an adult and uh Mm. you know i think it has to start there but how you start it is the question and that's the challenge anyway yeah and good on some of these athletes for speaking out you know i know there's been some criticism around how long it took them to speak out but i I think good on them for speaking out because uh, these are role models to many young people especially and if they speak out on issues like this that's going to really address the problem and help in a big way, I think. Well, it doesn't hurt. I, I agree with you totally. And there's a montage I just saw on Twitter of a bunch of CFL players uh, speaking out on, on behalf of, uh, you know, being more kind and understanding to everybody. It's a, it's a great little two-minute piece on Twitter. And, uh, look, that sort of thing can't hurt. Uh, what is hurting in the United States as much as anything is the way Donald Trump is acting. Oh. But that's another story, hell. Yeah, no kidding, man. I got off the air yesterday. I flipped on TV, getting ready for dinner, just, you know, take a couple minutes to clear the head. And I saw what was happening in Washington where they were clearing away these peaceful protesters for his his photo op, and he's calling himself the law and order president now. And uh, it's, yeah, it, it's not helpful at, at a time when we, we need leadership, uh, you know, to help us lead the way. But anyhow, let, let's have a little fun here because I'm really yeah. enjoying, it's only been a few days, but I'm really enjoying uh, your uh, favorite 90th anniversary bomber memories. Every day there's a new one. Today it's Bob Cameron. I don't have time to play it now. I was going to play it because they don't air on my show. They air on the other shows. But they've been fantastic. But I wanted to pin you down, Bob. Give me, please, your favorite bomber memory of all time. Now, come on, Hal. I knew you were going to ask me that because you told me. <laughs> and I've been doing this for almost 50 years. And you're asking me to come up with one yes, memory? One. It's funny. I made a list here. <laughs> okay. So you're not going to give me one. You're going to mention four or five. Go ahead. I knew this is the way it was going to happen. Yeah. Can I go to four <laughs> o'clock on this or yeah. what? Uh, <laughs> yes. And I, and I started in 74 when Don Jonas was traded. We were coming back from a, a game in Regina in the airport. And we saw, I, I'll never forget it, we saw our lunch for the GM pull Don Jonas aside. And he just led mm. the Bombers to a victory. 
And he pulled him aside into a little room at the airport and told him he'd been traded to Hamilton for Chuck Ely. And so that was probably the first memory that it, it sort of etched in my mind. Yeah. And then the most recent one, of course, was last year's Grey Cup win and, and the West final win in Regina. That fourth quarter is a quarter unlike any I can mm. ever recall. The one play, if there's one play, I guess it would be Milt Stiegel, not his record-breaking touchdown, which uh, was at Canadian Stadium on a little one-yard toss from Kevin Glenn. And I'll never forget that night because I don't think I've ever heard Canada in stadium louder. And the stadium actually rocked. Honest to God, we could feel it moving in the press box because the people were cheering so loudly. But there was a game in 2000, I think it was 2007, Doug Berry's first year as head coach win. On the last play of the game, Steve caught that 109-yard touchdown pass against Edmonton and mm-hmm. pulled a victory out of a sure defeat. And, and I'll never forget. And Milt will always tell people that that is the one play that he will never forget, and it's the most sensational play of his career. But I could go on and on. There's so many of them. Yeah. It's funny, in, in researching these memories, Hal, I'm back in the early 2000s when Kahari Jones and that gang was wreaking havoc and scoring points, and there was a game where he threw four touchdown passes to Arlen Bruce, and the Bombers beat Calgary 51-48 in double mm. overtime. Uh, you know, so there's one game, and I, and so my mind is flashing back to that, and what an incredible night that was, and the stadium was packed again, and man, uh, there's not enough room in my head for all of them, Al. What am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just tell you a couple things, and then we'll we'll end with one more uh, question for you. Paul Robson the other night was fantastic. I really enjoyed 7 to 8, the Bomber Hour on the CGOB Sports Show with you and and Christian O'Mell, and I'm telling you, man, there is a podcast there. I know we got the Bomber podcast, but there is a podcast there or a special hour or something that has to continue reminiscing with old bomb, you know, bombers of, of the past and, and people involved with the bombers because it is so cool listening to you. You've been around a long time talking to these people about, you know, the great bomber teams and, and players over the years. So I've really enjoyed that. I, I hope we can find a way to continue it. Um, whether it's a feature on the Bomber broadcast in the future or whatever, because I've, I've really enjoyed it. So here's my final question, Bob. Um, okay. Future future memories. Uh, you know, we don't know yet when there will be any uh, Bomber football, but it, it is, you, you make a really good point in, in talking about all these memories and not being able to narrow it down. It's kind of cool to think there are just as many more Bomber memories coming. Well, and I was so looking forward to this season, Hal, for that reason, because I thought the Bombers are coming back with a really a loaded team and a team that had a chance to win a second consecutive Grey Cup, and there are more records for Andrew Harris to break career marks and all the rest of it, and uh, what's Willie Jefferson going to do for an encore, and Adam Big Hill, and, you know, there were all sorts of possibilities, and there still are if they can get at least half a season in in September. It won't be the same, but at least it would be something. So, yeah, look, it's never going to change as each season passes. There, And even in the down years, you know, there was always mm-hmm. something you could look at, and Although one year when they were three and fifteen under Jeff Reinbold, it was pretty hard to find a highlight. But <laughs> <laughs> most years, most years you could find uh, you know some things that uh, you know sort of yep. reinvigorated your memory bank, and you said, "Hey, yeah, that was really cool." So there are many, uh, many look. This club was formed in 1930, 90 years ago, and that's mm-hmm. why we're doing them the 90th anniversary. Yeah. So uh, 90 years from now. Somebody like me and you will be talking yeah. about right. what the Bombers have done in the last 180 years. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, with Reinbold, there wasn't it wasn't great football, but it was an entertaining time, no question about it. Reinbold, you know was, what sticks uh, out? What sticks out for me, and again, I was thinking yeah. about this, is despite all the losses, every now and then, Milt Stegall would run a deep route, and Chris Vargas or whoever was the quarterback yeah. would throw him a deep ball, and he'd score a touchdown. Yeah. And Joe Poplowski was working with me on the games back then, and we'd look at each other and smile and go. There is Milt again giving us something to feel good about. (laughs) Hey, Bob, I'm enjoying the memories. Can't wait to hear more. Thanks for doing this. Okay, Al. The uh, protests and rioting continues in Minneapolis and across the U.S. Corey Sheffman is a human rights lawyer representing indigenous people in Manitoba and Ontario, and he joins us now. Corey, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I saw a, a tweet. You were actually responding to a, a tweet from Bob Ray, and you pointed out that, uh, and he was talking about the number of blacks killed by police in Toronto, and you responded by saying, and I was sort of shocked, I wasn't su- surprised, but I was shocked if that makes sense, but you said that 66% of the people killed by the Winnipeg Police Service over the past 20 years have been Indigenous that's absolutely that's, uh, right. Yeah, go ahead. Your your thoughts on that, because I, as I said, I was not surprised, but shocked to see that number. Absolutely, and, and you know, it's not look, the police are a huge problem, but it's not just the police. This is a problem that goes all the way through the Canadian justice system. Uh, don't forget that seventy percent of people in Manitoba jails are Indigenous. Um, you know, obviously, Manitoba has a large Indigenous population but it's still only about 10 to 15%. And then you get these massive overrepresentation when it comes to violence by the state. You know, just last month, Winnipeg saw three Indigenous people, including a 16-year-old girl, gunned down by police in the span of 10 days. Um, you know, this is a problem that is not new. Um, the RCMP, of course, was created to put down an Indigenous uprising in Winnipeg, or what is now Winnipeg. Um, police in Canada have, and particularly in the prairies, have long uh, disproportionately targeted Indigenous people. Um, and unfortunately, no one in power seems to be willing to do anything about it. Uh, whether it's because they don't want to, you know, feel the wrath of the police unions or something else, the oversight mechanisms that have been put in place are ineffective. Uh, in Manitoba, the uh, law enforcement review agency, which considers, uh, you know, when someone accuses the police of um, police brutality or assault or that sort of stuff, uh, they have a, a, a rate of su- approximately 95% of letting police off the hook. Uh, the IIU, the Independent Investigation Unit, which was created to try and address some of these problems uh, in terms of uh, having you know, neutral civilian oversight of the police, um, has a miserable rate when it comes to holding police accountable. Uh, and of course, the police aren't helping matters. They blockade the IIU at every turn. So the, the solutions that have been imposed are half-hearted and don't work. Uh, And what we're left with is communities of color, and in Winnipeg, particularly indigenous communities, uh, feeling targeted by by police and seeing their members uh, killed by police. 
And the people that are right now listening, and I had a woman call up last half hour after we, we talked about Minneapolis, and I had a woman call up. She says, I'm a white woman, and I don't feel like I'm being heard. Uh, I want more help for seniors. Why do you have to make it about race? But as I pointed out to her, it's obvious that it's about race. And we've got, as you just pointed out eloquently, similar problems happening here in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, and, and right across the country. We're, we're not seeing rioting uh, like they are in the U.S. right now, but we are seeing blockades and other ways uh, that Indigenous people in this country are, are protesting. Our, our Prime Minister weighed in on Indigenous racism as well. Uh, you'd have to be living under a rock not to feel that there is some truth to this. What do you say to the people right now that say, well, listen, you break a crime, you do the time, so to speak, you know, but but as you point out, the numbers still don't make sense, do they? No, I mean, they, they don't make sense because Indigenous people aren't committing crimes at, you know, 20 times the rate of uh, of, of white people. Uh, it's just it's not the reality of the situation. You know, and I think it's best exemplified by the fact that, you know, I said earlier that 70% of people in Manitoba jails um, are uh, are Indigenous. Well, the, the other part of that statistic is that um, 70% of those people, or close to 70%, are not actually serving a sentence. And so it's important to remember um, that just because a person is encountering police, especially if they're a person of color, it doesn't mean that they've committed a crime um, you know, I saw a video online the other day of um, an FBI agent, a black FBI agent in the States, uh, and two uh, Minneapolis police officers were trying to arrest him. Uh, he wasn't in uniform, and so when he pulled out his ID showing that he was an FBI agent, they were, you know, all apologetic. But in the meantime, you know, you get this racial profiling, which we see um, through, you know, throughout Canada. Um, in Toronto, there have been big problems with carding, uh, where police officers will, you know, sort of, they say randomly ask uh, people for their ID, but the statistics show that it's not random. It, targeted, it targets people of color. Final question here, Corey, and, and, you know, maybe it's unfair to make comparisons to what's happening right now in the U.S. and what you and I are talking about here, Uh, but are we further along to trying to fix the problem here than they are there, or or is that even fair to make that, uh, ask that question of you to try and compare? No, we're absolutely not. I mean, it's a fair question, and we're not farther along. We're just quieter and maybe more, more docile. Um, you know, it's really unfortunate that we only talk about this or we tend to only talk about it when something happens in the U.S. to, you know, bring it onto the front page of our of our news feeds. Um, but racism in Canada, systemic racism in Canada is just as bad as it is in, in the United States. Uh, we maybe do a little bit better job of hiding it. Uh, but, you know, there are easy solutions, not to solve the whole problem, but to at least make things a little bit better. The uh, police take up a quarter of the city of Winnipeg's budget. Uh, meanwhile, the city of Winnipeg is cutting grants to community groups by 10%, cutting back Winnipeg Transit, closing the Millennium Library on Sundays. You know, defunding the police, reducing their funding, and redirecting that funding to community services uh, is an easy way to reduce uh, the impact of police on communities of color.
Corey, got to run. Thank you very much. Really appreciate this. Thanks very much. Bye now. Dave Patrician, the sports doctor, is here. Dynamite, how are you, sir? I'm good, but I am sad at what's happening in uh, Minneapolis yeah. because that's like a second home to me being a Minnesota Viking season ticket holder. I'm just sad. I'm just sad that uh, the state of affairs down there. It doesn't seem like it because I think most of us are really familiar with the city and have all been down there. Many of us have been down there multiple times, and, and it doesn't seem like this uh, should be happening so close to us. It just seems strange, doesn't it? Well, I have a, exactly. I have a lot of friends down in the Twin Cities, and it's basically, I almost think it's almost very similar to Winnipeg, the, the makeup of the people. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, we know it's it, it, all through the United States, it's it's racially divided at times, but I don't feel that in Minneapolis. I mean, I feel that when you travel further south. I mean, I felt it really much in, say, Baltimore, even in, in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, but Minneapolis seems pretty peaceful. Well, it's kind of like what Milt Stiegel said the other day about Atlanta, because he lives in Atlanta. And he says, in Atlanta, it's a pretty progressive city, but you get outside Atlanta and you're in Georgia, you know? So it, yep. it can yeah. be very different uh, by not having to travel very far. How was dinner at the Keg last night? It looked good. You know, <laughs> I know, because I was coming on, I was sending you pictures. Uh, uh, it was, um, um, first of all, I thought it was going to be, a much different experience. I know that uh, I read up on the keg and I get the emails about all the different safety precautions they were going to take. So I was kind of expected to be like the elephant being washed by the guy in the circus, you know, with a big stick and uh, hose down. But uh, you had to make a reservation. Uh, you were asked to sanitize your hands when you came in. Uh, you were led to your table. The tables were um, spaced out uh, throughout the restaurant. Um, and there's a certain section in the downtown keg with some booths. Um, and although all the booths were not used, there was plexiglass between them, um, and uh, there was nothing on the table. They brought the uh, the menus, they brought the uh, silverware and the side plates and the drinks, um, and it was um, just a little different. But uh, what an upbeat atmosphere! I got to tell you about that first because the staff were so happy to come back to work because that's a restaurant chain that really got shut down early March because they weren't really. Steaks don't travel well for takeout. That's the word. That's the line they used, and uh, it was great. The, our server was just was outstanding. Um, I could see behind the scenes the different precautions that were they were taking. There was um, limited um, handling of glassware. Like for instance, the once the drinks were prepared, they were placed on a tray, and the tray was picked up and brought to the table. Um, and uh, the person per, uh, on the salad station uh, wearing masks. I couldn't see into the kitchen, but I believe that a lot of the people, the staff, were wearing masks. I saw a face shield, protective face shield on the person doing dishes because he's got the dirtiest job in the place. Um, and uh, like, But the, the thing that really impressed me the most and the really thing that touched my heart is how happy every employee at the keg was to see customers again. And uh, because, they, you know, and, and it was a great dining experience. Everything was just top notch. Fantastic. Very well said, Dave. I'm, I'm, I wanted to have you on today because I knew you could explain to people what the experience was like. And yeah, it, listen, you've been in the restaurant business for many years. You're the sports doctor, but you've been in the restaurant biz and continue to be in the restaurant uh, business um, with Mary Brown's. Uh, you're right. I think people in the business, uh, it's one thing to get the thumbs up from the province. Okay, you can open the you know the patio and then now the indoor dining room. 
but you worry as a person who owns a restaurant and who works in a restaurant, will the people come? Uh, how busy was it at the cake last night? Um, well, from what I could tell, every table that was set up to be uh, sat in because of the distancing and the uh, at least two meters between tables, it looked to me as I left that everyone, every, every table was full. Um, and uh, it was just, like I said, like that was one of the most positive experiences. And as we're leaving, people were smiling. And, and it was just like a, a really different experience. It was like just so happy. Everybody was happy to be out. And it's just, you know, and, and you, you did say Mary Brown's, like we opened a restaurant today in Osborne Village. And uh, the appreciation, the people that come in, and uh, they see the extra precautions that we've taken with uh, the social distancing in line and the hand sanitizer provided and, uh, you know, everything being served. We, we, we didn't open our, our dining area yet, but the people are appreciative of the extra. They're just appreciative that they're able to now get out, enjoy some nice weather, and enjoy going to one of their favorite restaurants again, and a new restaurant, too, in the Osborne Village. I don't think you mentioned this, uh, back to the cake for a second, your server, did the server have a mask on? Did the server have gloves on? That was a question I asked of uh, uh, Sean Jeffrey at Manitoba Restaurant Association, and he says it's going to vary depending on the restaurant. What about at the cake? I did ask. She did not. I did ask, if, it, and she said, yes, masks were available to them to use if they desired. But well, what I didn't mention, and this is what we're doing, and it's just, just a matter of fact now in the restaurant business, is we actually, when the staff come into work, there's a questionnaire that we'll ask them, uh, and we will talk about feel, how they feel, and we will talk about that. We have um, the thermometers, and if we needed to, to take temperature checks, um, and we remind everybody and, you know, throughout the years, it, it's just, it seems to you and I how if it's, it's common sense, if you're, if you're sick, you stay home. But people have a lot of obligations. Like you stay home in the restaurant business, that kind of means you're not going to get paid, right? We're, you're on a shift mm-hmm. basis here. So as a matter of education for, for my staff at the different Mary Browns, I'm going to say, listen, I don't want you here if you're sick. And I understand you have obligations to make in terms of you have to rent and you have all the bills you have to pay. You, you don't come to work sick. However, I will do everything in my power and all, and all our restaurant owners' power to find you a shift down, somewhere down the road so you can make up with it. Because, you know, people just, hey, I can't afford not to come in. I'm sick. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to pretend I'm not. But we don't want anybody sick. And, they, uh, and the, uh, our server at the keg, she said, yeah, it was pretty stringent. She said to the point where there was a lot of questions. And, uh, yeah, like I said, they do have the, the masks and stuff. I didn't see... Um, you know, and the gloves is the is the one in the restaurant. We wash our hands so often that uh, that the, the the need for gloves is so little in here. And again, if you're if you are of of health and you do not have any, um, you know, you don't have a respiratory, you're not coughing, you're nothing. The masks too, they're really just to kind of you know protect um, others from you. And then we didn't really see that. But people working directly with food, I saw the cake, especially. Uh, salads and uh, that food that's basically going to go from a from a refrigerated state to your table. They did those people did have masks on. Hey Dave, can you hang on through a break here? I got a couple other things I want to ask you, and I'm up against a break here. Yep. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.